1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Charles Hirschkin's lyrical and majestic new book, The Feeling of History, Islam, Romanticism and Andalusia, represents a profound work of retrieval that launches and executes a stinging rebuke of an ontology of Europe that presumes its exceptionalism. The central focus of Hirschkin's study is Andalusismo, or a discursive aesthetic and political tradition that seeks to disrupt the alleged cleavage between medieval and modern Spain by recovering the deep and penetrating imprints of Muslim Iberia on contemporary Spanish society. To engage Spain's Muslim and Jewish past not as a bygone and irrelevant relic, but as indelibly entwined to the present requires a form of attunement to the past that is activated by the censoria and suspicious of historicist rigour. In the course of this poetically charged book, one meets a range of thinkers from across the political spectrum and travels in unexpected avenues of inquiry, such as the centrality of flamenco, to Andalusismo. The feeling of history combines piercing attention to the productive importance of the sensoria in encountering the past with an astonishingly lucid critique of dominant strands of the discipline of history. What emerges from this exercise is not only a richly textured interrogation of a hugely important, though often lampooned, tradition of Andalusismo, but also a politically urgent reconsideration of modern secular conceptions of how the past, much of how the past must engage and make claims on the present. Here now is my conversation with Professor Charles Hirschkind. Hello Charles. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for making time to speak with us today. Uh, As I was saying before we started recording uh, this conversation, uh, such an incredible and delightful um, and a very, uh, I guess, a hauntingly majestic uh, uh, book, this one. Really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, We have a tradition, Charles, on the New Books Network. I think this might be your first time to to be on the New Books Network Um, So we have a tradition that our first question is biographical, where we're interested in uh, hearing from the authors about a bit about their journeys, how they became scholars, scholars of Islam, Muslim societies. Uh, So before we get to this particular book, perhaps briefly you could just uh, share with us a bit about your intellectual journey, how you became an anthropologist, scholar of Islam and Muslim societies.
2: Sure, I'd be glad to. uh, And thanks very much for the invitation to to speak with you today. I'm, I'm also greatly looking forward to it. So you know, I had a, took a rather uh, roundabout way to um, arriving at anthropology and my interest in Islam. I had spent about oh about eight years working as a as a musician, and a large part of that in Italy before I started my undergraduate career. And while I was working in Italy, I because like all musicians, I had to have a day job. I worked in a, a steel pipe factory for years, in which. Uh, a number of the people I was working with were from the Middle East, and I had picked up a little Arabic while, while working in uh, that factory. So when later on, you know, and I decided to go back to school, um, I needed to study a language, and I thought uh, I thought I would study Arabic just from having developed an interest, an interest in it from these associations. And it was really through Arabic that my, my interest in Islam and the Middle East developed. That is, I you know through simply through language study and, and therefore spending time in, in Cairo in, in the course of my Arabic education, um, I found i found my interest drawn ever more toward the history of Islam, towards aspect of religious practice, to all sorts of uh, all sorts of aspects of Islam. So that that was sort of the trajectory that brought me there. I, I was also, of course, fortunate to have a number of mentors along the way who really helped me cultivate that interest and who, who pointed me in directions that um, were really useful and important in the development of my own appreciation for Islam.
1: Wonderful. Thanks so much. So I thought you know one way to begin our conversation about this book before we get to the conceptual um, intervention and some of the key themes I thought maybe we can uh, I could have you introduce the book for our listeners a bit and what you're up to in this book by talking about these three key terms that you know run throughout uh, the text um, the the three terms being uh, Andalusismo, Andalusista, and the third Spain, this idea of the third Spain. So I was wondering if you could just introduce to our listeners a bit, what are these terms who may not be familiar uh, with this context? And uh, from there, we can see how we can uh, further interrogate some of the key themes that emerge.
2: Okay, sure, I'd be glad to. So Andalusismo is a term that is often used simply to refer to a regional a regional nationalist movement in southern Spain. It starts early in the 20th century. That's only one particular political face of, of a much broader tradition. And, uh, you know, the foundational claim of this broader tradition could be stated as follows. Um, that's the, it's the idea that contemporary Andalusia and, and by extension, Spain and, and Europe, of which Andalusia is a part, is linked in vitally important ways to medieval Al Andalus. That, that's the name for medieval Islamic Iberia. And that and that the challenge faced by Europeans today or by Andalusians today require a recognition of that historical identity and continuity. That is, that Andalusia works, Andalusia is a tradition based in a cultivated appreciation for the histories and legacies of southern Iberia's Muslim and Jewish societies, and understands that practice as necessary for developing a, let's say, a critical reflection on both Spanish and European politics and culture. Um, so that's you know, Andalusia. It has its or it has its origins as a as a identifiable uh, movement from from late in the nineteenth century. It's connected in ways to um, Spanish Orientalism. It's connected in ways to Spanish colonial interest in North Africa. But it also importantly responds to the experience of people who live in a, in a in a location that has been powerfully shaped by the Muslim and Jewish past, you know, in the medieval past. So, and Andalusistas is the term used to describe people who's shaped their lives around this tradition. That is, who sought to live, you know. Whether they're artists or musicians or journalists or politicians or historians, but who have sought to live as inhabitants of this unique territory that has its foundations in medieval Al-Andalus, Al- and they do so, and they do so by cultivating an appreciation for the way that past has left a lasting imprint in on music, on architecture, on language, in art, in poetics. In many dimensions of their lives so they come to acquire a sensibility a sensitivity to the way that past remains alive in the present um, in terms of the the last term you asked me about the third spain um the, the third spain is um is that spain that is that that is um that is that is embracing of its Jewish and Muslim legacies, The Spain that is that emerges integrally, integrally. Let's say from the seed that was planted by Al Andalus. Um, so it can be, you know, it can use, be usefully discerned in contrast to two other Spain. So one Spain would be the Spain of exile, that is, the Spain of those who were forced to flee, forced by the armies and inquisitors of Catholic Iberia. Let's say in the in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, A second Spain being that of what we could call the modern political order that's founded on this expulsion of Jews and Muslims from Iberia, and that is both Catholic and European in in its identity. So the third Spain is the one that that, um, embraces its own continuity with that medieval Andalus and understands itself as the inheritor and 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 seeks to give give place to that inheritance in present day life. Um, so it's a term right, that's been developed by a number of thinkers to capture this this aspect that goes against, let's say, the Spain of the Inquisition and the Spain that is based in an exclusivist model of of religious identity and belonging.
1: So as the next question, um, I thought it might be useful uh, to have you talk a bit about the title of uh, the book, The Feeling of History. And of course, one of the major interventions of this book, as I read it, was to uh, have us rethink and reattune in terms of how we imagine uh, history, uh, especially in in, in this particular context. Um, and, and you made two interconnected arguments from that uh, in, in that uh, perspective. One was this shift that you talk about from sensoria or this kind of uh, uh, in, uh, uh, decisively affective engagement with history uh, to this idea of the uh, a more cognitive or a cogito uh, understanding of history. And then there, of course the other historical sort of uh, claim that you're interrogating throughout the book is the erasure of Muslims and Jews from, modern spanish historiography so i was wondering if you could perhaps explain to our listeners a bit this this interconnected dual argument that you that you present in this book by speaking a bit about this title the feeling of history and i was particularly struck i just want to share with the listeners this book has some incredible Uh, sentences throughout it's a really lyrical book but i was particularly struck here in your introduction the way you talk about the past and historical representation you write this is on page 21 the past is not merely a tool of our interests but like the object of love a point of our vulnerability where life exceeds our reflexive grasp of it perhaps you could offer a bit of commentary on this uh, sentiment also as you reflect on this question
2: okay thank you for that question um By the title, I wanted to give the sense, I wanted to communicate that, you know, the past cannot always be an object of dispassionate study and reflection, that sometimes we're tied to the past or let's say to particular regions of the past or aspects of the past through feeling and emotion. And that these, these dispositions, they shape the way we encounter the past or the reality that it has in our lives, not by distorting it, Right. And this is what, you know, from the standpoint of mainstream historiography, the, you know, the passions should be excluded from historical reflection because they they risk distorting our relation to the past. My claim in this book is that our relation to the past is fundamentally dependent on the passions and on the way that the passions dispose us towards the past and make make the certain aspects of the past powerfully relevant in our lives. And demanding of our attention, so you know the Andalusistas I spoke with felt passionately attached to medieval Iberia, right? And their their writings, uh, the writings of Andalusismo, exhibit this these this sort of passionate attachment, and they lived that attachment as a demand on their lives, right? And and as a source of insight. That is, in their view. Um, strong feelings that invoked in them by Al-Andalus, as they encountered it, let's say, in their daily lives, in, their, in the, the landscape, in their language, in their music, or through things that they read, that those powerful feelings enabled them to grasp aspects of their contemporary situation, of the contemporary world, that otherwise they would not be able to see. Right? That, that, a, that a dispassionate attitude to the past was not just enabling of a kind of truth, but also limiting of the kinds of truth one may encounter in the past, right? So it, they understood that those passions allowed them a kind of critical perspective or what what could be called a Mediterraneanist perspective on social, political, religious, aesthetic life around the norms of, of uh, uh, political life in Spain and in Europe. And particularly a, a critical spectrum you know, perspective on the exclusionary logics that are behind those norms. So so for the Andalusistas, the the dispassionate stance of the historian, right, that is sort of trumpeted by the discipline of history as the the epistemic ground of its truth, has the effect of relocating the past, and in this case, the Al-Andalus, to a kind of irrelevance, right? Is that that obscuring a, a distance between the present and the past, such that the past becomes something of a museum piece by severing the emotional bonds that make the past speak so powerful, so powerfully to many people today, and in Andalusia, you know, that, that makes that that uh, medieval past particularly relevant and. Um, in the way they understand their own lives. So the comments you read, right, by, that I wrote, um, I can see I was having a poetic moment there, um, but it's uh, <laughs> that comment about the past not always being a tool, right, was meant to bring this out, that we that we cannot always make the past whatever we want, right? It's not that you can simply construe it to serve whatever ideological position we want. Of course, this does happen. I mean, I'm not saying that we don't use the past in that sense. No, that is certainly... um, That is certainly the past is being invoked for all sorts of purposes all the time. But my point is to say that this kind of instrumental relation, that the past simply lends itself to our uses, as defined by the present, does not exhaust, let's say, the impact that the past may have on our lives. And sometimes we may feel... Powerfully bound to some part of the past, um, in the way that we can become bound to another person, let's say in love, which is why I, I mentioned that bound in a way that we cannot opt out of, right? But that we actually demands that we respond to. Now, one solution, if you're you know you're bound in love and and you're the the object of your love is unavailable, we could say that well you, maybe you go to therapy to get help, you know, to get over that person or something, and we might understand that. The discipline of history is one place that offers such a therapy for our attachments to the past, by by teaching us that um, some of those attachments are not quite based in reality, but are rather um, should be understood as forms of nostalgia or forms of romantic longing, you no, know, which which we identify as you know, perhaps powerful in our lives, but not quite based in objective truth. And that's, you know, that's uh, one of the things that my book seeks to counter.
0: Mm-hmm. Wonderful.
1: Uh, well, the next question I want to ask is to do with some, some specific examples of, uh, the, you examine the texts and the music and other aspects of a multiple actors in the course of this book. Uh, but I want to talk a bit about two actors who come up uh, specifically uh, in uh, the f- first substantive chapter of uh, the book, um, Gil Benomia and Rodriguez Ramos, and uh, their conceptualization of uh, Andalusismo. Um, uh, so perhaps you could perhaps just introduce these two figures for our listeners and, and talk a bit about uh, their conceptualization of Andalusismo. And I was particularly struck in the middle of this chapter you describe their their labor as what you call an ethics of disorientation, which really struck me as uh, quite critical to the concerns of this chapter. So perhaps you could give a couple of examples with these figures. What does Andalusismo entail for them? And what do you mean by this idea of an ethics of disorientation?
2: Sure. Um, I mean, many of the, there aren't that many chapters, but a good number of the chapters follow a kind of structure where... The first half of the chapter f- focuses on a figure either from the late 19th or early 20th century, uh, while the second part being a contemporary figure. And in this case, Rudolfo Gil Benumaya was born at the turn of the century in, in 1900, while uh, Antonio Manuel Rodriguez Ramos is a contemporary lawyer who lives in Córdoba. So, you know, what struck me about these two and what I, you know, the reason I, I chose them as... As sort of exemplary figures within the within the tradition of Andalusismo, but on one hand, um, in many ways they express a vision that that greatly overlaps. Like there's immense similarity in their writings, in the perspectives they develop, and on the other hand, um, they come from diametrically opposed sort of political careers. That is. Uh, Gil Benumaya worked within the within the fascist regime of Franco throughout much of his career, while Rodriguez Ramos is a you know is a left a, lef- a leftist activist, and so you know I, I think they were it was interesting for me to think about and putting them side by side in that chapter. They point to the way that Andalusismo, on one hand. Sort of provides a kind of a kind of historical geography from which to sort of think problems in the present, but it does not prescribe a particular political solution. Indeed, there there's a wide variety of sort of political stances that have, let's say, found authorization within an Andalusista perspective. So it's not it's not narrowly prescriptive in that sense. Um, even though there are ways and that despite those differences I think one can find commonalities of, of political you know of political orientation and so the chapter tries to think through that um, on one hand you know we, we'd be ten- our tendency would be to sort of disqualify Benumaya because he's associated with fascism and therefore we know that that his his view must be either irrelevant or dangerous to us and yet, I think that there was something going on there in his thought and in the in the movement of which he was a part of that that right that deserves further attention. Um, let me say a little bit about why I think that you know that their Andalusismo um, involved what I call an ethics of disorientation. So, you know, most interpreters of Andalusismo understand it in in instrumental terms, that is, as a kind of claim an identity, a claim on identity that serves a political purpose, kind of identity politics, right? And in an earlier moment, um, they understand that Andalusismo served uh, the purposes of promoting the colonial policies of the fascist state. That is because you know Andalusismo emphasized the commonalities, let's say, between. North Africa, and particularly Morocco and Spain, that, that commonalities born of a, a, a previous historical encounter that took place in during the period of Al-Andalus, then that that served as a kind of legitimating discourse for Spanish colonialism in North Africa and gave a justification for Spain to say, Ah, oh, look, we're, we're coming not as colonizers, but as lost brothers returning to our right returning to our you know our natural allies and and uh friends and so that certainly that was deployed by spanish colonialism that kind of argument but i think it uh and today of course people see that you know andalusismo is promotes a kind of multiculturalist agenda that it is it is um, often connected to a kind of liberal politics of multiculturalism in in Southern Spain. That includes things like a promoting immigrant rights, um, criticizing the kind of uh, politics toward the Middle East that are highly aggressive, exclusionary, and so on. So what struck me, you know, in, in reading the biographies of Andalusismo, of the Andalusistas, was that you couldn't really just read them as as uh, articulating an identity but you also they also needed to be re- read as expressing a kind of sense of disorientation that is the discovery that that one is not quite the sort of purified subject of catholic spain that you know one had learned about in school and that historians had taught but that that their lives were entwined with are marked by the legacies of, of the Jewish and Muslim inhabitants uh, who'd lived on Iberian soil in ways that were difficult to sort of access, difficult to sort of assess and clarify, especially given the fact that, that you know, most of the history of modern Spain has been uh, built on the erasure or denial of those legacies, right? The, the sort of, Foundational moment within the nationalist historiography of Spain is what's called the Reconquista, and that's the, exp- the sort of the final, the, the final victory over the Muslim kingdoms, or the last remaining Muslim kingdom in Iberia, and eventually the expulsion, both of the people, the Jews and the Muslims, who lived there, their expulsion or their, you know, their forced conversion to Catholicism. But also the expulsion of their legacies and, you know, the attempt to erase from language, from, from different cultural forms, from architecture, from art, um, all of the sort of um, features that had been shaped during the medieval period at the intersection of these different religious groups. So Spain, on one hand, is it's sort of, you know, a key moment in its foundation has to do with that expulsion. And so, the Andalusistas precisely are ex- discovering that, well, wait, that expulsion was not successful. Actually, our lives are, you know, our uh, we continue to be inheritors of a legacy that not has not been erased. That is still visible in our language. That's still evident in our the similarity of our gestures with. People who live on the other side of the Mediterranean. It's still evident in the way in which our music bears the imprint of those Middle Eastern traditions, and so there's a kind of disorientation of trying to sort of find oneself in a location that cannot quite be recognized in 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 terms of the the dominant forms of identity that you know that are built on the. The separation of Europe from the Middle East, of Christian from Muslim and Jew, um, and Andalusism, I understand, is a kind of attempt to, to find oneself in the face of these um, in in the face of this unsettlement, of the face of the disorientation that comes from recognizing oneself as the inheritor of a tradition that one can only partially know largely because many parts of it have been denied and erased. Um, so that's what I mean by the importance of disorientation uh, within the within this tradition. There's a letter from Benoumaia I cited in the book it's, where he's writing to one of the leaders of the Moroccan nationalist movement where you see this sense of disorientation very clearly. And he's trying in this letter to explain why why a Spaniard such as himself would be working to promote Moroccan nationalism. And indeed he was a he was in close collaboration with Moroccan nationalists. So he's trying to explain to this leader, you know, the his particular position vis-a-vis the the Moroccan nationalist movement. Um, and he says something like you know, he says, Well, yes, it's true I'm not a Moroccan, but but then he says, But but indeed I am a Muslim. Well, this, you know, this begs the question: In what sense is he a Muslim? Because he's not, you know, he's not known to have um, identified as himself as a Muslim, or it's not known to have lived in a way that might, we might recognize as Muslim. So there's the, the claim to being a Muslim is is an interesting one because I, I read it in part as a claim to have to be the inheritor of of a form of life in which. That Islam has deeply imprinted and he, and his recognition of the fact that Islam is in some ways essential to who he is, whether he is, is or is not a practicing Muslim in that sense. And he also goes on to say that, you know, that he's, well, he's an Andalusian. And then he glosses that. What I mean is that I'm an Arab. <laughs> well, Andalusians are Spaniards, <laughs> you know, in the, in the moment he's writing. So for him to call himself an Arab, again, points to a certain sort of kind of ambivalence, we can say, in the way that he understood that Andalusia was profoundly configured by an earlier Arab presence. Um, and, And so in some ways we find like these categories such as you know, that he uses here, Andalusian, Arab, Muslim, Spaniard, Moroccan, none of them quite, none of them do justice to the situation with it, within which he finds himself. There's a kind of confusion of terms. And and it's uh, and that's part of the disorientation I, I'm, I'm talking about. And in some ways, his political career exemplifies this confusion, because across his career, one sees him always attempting to sort of like he's always proposing new sort of configurations of political community, new terms of alliance, new sort of f- new linkages that that bind different parts of the world together in in unexpected uh, uh, configurations and so on. And all of them, one sees him sort of rethinking these terms and finding new new sort of political possibilities. Uh, within them, and you know, it's not just—it's interesting. You know, this his vision also embraced Latin America, which uh, that is both because Latin America was colonized, right, by Spain, but also you know he finds in the contemporary period the prominent role of Arabs and, and particularly Lebanese, you know, within Latin American society and politics, right? Which so he sees Latin America in some sense also as part of a larger inheritance of Al Andalus. And, and, and therefore tied to Spain and, and what's, you know, this all sounds like a kind of fantastical geography, right? A kind of imaginary history and geography that he's creating, but it's not quite as imaginary. It's not quite as fantastical. If you think about the way in which he sought to realize it by not just by sort of writing but by the kinds of alliances and politics he pursued in his life and others recognize this too and what's fascinating and I I mentioned in passing in the book is that you know late in his life the Arab League put his name up to be a representative from Latin America to the Arab League that is they also recognize he wasn't from Latin America he wasn't an Arab and yet the Arab League could recognize him as a legitimate representative of, to that body from Latin America. And so, and he had, you know, and of course he had very strong ties with Arab leaders in and, and leaders of the of uh, Islamic movements and Arab nationalist movements. And so it just points to the fact that, in his own life, he sought to sort of concretize and realize an imaginary that was, that stood in stark opposition and was, could not even be conceived from the standpoint of the reigning political categories, but that could be articulated practically in his, in the activities that, that he undertook. And I'll just say very quickly, R- Rodriguez Ramos also, his, his political career is, is also one of, a sort of continuous shifting set of political initiatives that all, in different ways, are tied to an Andalucista vision. But one gets a sense right there is that he's always this this sort of continuous move, including affiliations with Podemos, the, uh, the contemporary sort of leftist political party in in Spain, and but many other kind of political initiatives. One sees a kind of sense that you know any. Attempting to find a kind of a political vehicle adequate to an Andalusista vision. And yet the difficulty of that, given the the, politi- the contemporary determinants of political life. And that there's always a kind of disjunction between the possibilities of the political present and the sort of Andalusista that he imagines. And I, I read that in terms of a kind of coming to terms with that disjunction and and, and an attempt to. To realize a certain Andalusista vision in a world in which that's extremely difficult, given given the you know the, the categories and political forms that dominate.
1: You know, one of the themes that one uh, palpably sees as a reader throughout um, the, the book is this uh, this anxiety in uh, contemporary Spain, and modern uh, Spanish historiography, a- academy, popular culture, uh, politicians, etc in precisely this question of a continuity between modern contemporary Spain and uh, Muslim Iberia. And you really get a palpable sense of this anxiety cropping up in different, uh, in different moments. Um, uh, for example, with the whole question of architecture and the Great Mosque of Cordoba and other examples that you give uh, throughout the book. Uh, so uh, could you speak a bit about, and you, you do uh, talk about this uh, throughout the book, uh, what is at stake in this question of continuity uh, for Spanish historiography, for the academy, Spanish academy today? What is what is so uh, anxiety generating in this whole question of uh, continuity? And there are many examples in the book. I thought for purposes of discussion, uh, I would just choose one example of a scholar whose work really, uh, I guess, bothers and, and creates a lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, alarm uh, in Spanish Academy today and that was a very interesting work of uh, Gonzalez Ferrin uh, on the historiography of, uh, of Muslim Iberia and the emergence of Islam in, in this region. So I was wondering if you could sort of combine those two threads a bit, this, this anxiety and specifically the work of uh, Gonzalez Ferrin and why it created uh, why, did, uh, why did it hit such raw nerves when it comes to this particular question?
2: sure um i mean you're absolutely right there are there are um some very intense political stakes around this question of a continuity between let's say medieval spain and, and contemporary spain and it took me a while to sort of get a sense of them but but over time i could i could see what some of the anxieties that historians encountered in in writing about this i mean To begin with, as I mentioned before, you know that within sort of nationalist historiography, Spain is constructed on the ruins of Al Andalus. That is, the Reconquista is seen as both the birth of Spain, right? A birth that is, you know, that is built on the expulsion of Jews and Muslims, and therefore a birth that um, is the enabling condition for Spain to you know to achieve its sort of purified catholic identity and this 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 kind of nationalist narrative is right it, it achieves a particularly intense form during the period of national catholicism under under franco's rule when when spanish historians felt compelled for obvious political reasons to produce histories that that reconfirmed this abiding sense of deep Spanish history of a, of a deep Catholic soul at the heart of the country. So since, since the Franco regime, I mean, it's true that historians have felt, you know, a great, a release from those pressures, more able, let's say, to explore their, their past without the sort of intense ideological pressures coming from the state. And there's, and that has certainly enabled all kinds of very excellent work. Um, that would have been quite difficult during during the Franco period, um, but historians still find themselves in a in a uh, in a predicament in a difficult predicament, and and some of their their skepticism toward Andalusismo has to be understood in this light. That is, for for contemporary historians, Andalusismo sounds suspiciously like um, some of the discourses promoted by Franco, some of the sort of, you know, discourses promoted by a, a kind of national Catholic historiography, even though we'd say that Andalusismo stands in sharp contrast to that Catholic historiography due to its insistence on this kind of plural origin of this plural past to Spain. Where Why it makes historians nervous. I mean, many of these historians, of course, have lived within, you know, are, have the, the, the period of the civil war is still within memory. They still remember the kind of constraints under the Franco regime that in which they were, historians were compelled to produce a kind of romantic narrative about this, this deep uh, identity of Spain. But when they hear the Andalusistas claiming that, well, indeed, Spain does have a deep identity. It's just not, it's just not Sort of singularly Catholic. It's forged in a kind of encounter, let's say, of Jews, Muslims, and Christians. To take one formulation of it, they still feel there's a kind of dangerous romanticism in the positing of deep roots to, to to national identity that rings of a kind of you know a kind of romanticism they associate with fascism. So that's one source of nervousness. The other is is that I mean, conservative Catholicism remains a powerful force within, within Spain today. And for, and for liberal historians, um, it's Spain's membership within Europe that serves as a kind of bulk word, bulwark, bulwark, bulwark against, against those forces, against, let's say a slide back into the sort of regional provincialism and conservatism that defined the Franco years. So... In that sense, Andalusismo is also seen as a kind of dangerous indulgence. That is, especially in a moment when Europeans are increasingly invoking you know, their Judeo-Christian heritage as the basis for the civiliz- civilizational identity of the continent, and are doing so against what seemed to be a sort of perceived threat of Islam, then for, 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 Spanish, uh, for Spanish scholars to insist that, oh no, Spain is... Has been powerfully, you know, configured historically by the presence of Islam. That that makes uh, that makes con- a lot of contemporary Spaniards nervous because it it seems to throw into question Spain's Spain's natural affinity for a Europe that's increasingly defining itself as Christian or Judeo-Christian increasingly. So. Um, In that sense, Spain's claim to belong to Europe is better served by a discourse that emphasizes discontinuity with the Muslim Andalusian past or the claim that Islam has nothing to do with modern Spain. It's just part of a distant past. And so there's a strange, you know, one artifact of that is that the liberal worry about, you know, about countering, let's say, about Securing Spain's connection to to Europe as a and and the sort of progressive the kind of uh, as a way to sort of secure secure its progressive future aligns with a kind of conservative insistence on the Reconquista narrative, right? Which also insists that Spain is divorced from its its Muslim past, right? But, but for different reasons in order to sort of secure its national Catholic identity. So you have a sort of strange alliance of both kind of uh, the sort of nationalism associated with, with, um, right, with conservative forces and a progressivism, right? Associated with a pro-European perspective Both of those are enabled by a kind of a historical narrative that emphasizes the distance and disconnection with the Muslim past. Now, uh, the historian Emilio Gonzalez Ferin, who you mentioned, he particularly disturbs these distinctions that are at the heart of kind of the political and religious formation of Spanish nationalism. He has an argument that or what the part of his argument that particularly disturbs um, other scholars has to do with his claim that there was really not an Islamic invasion, as it's often called, into Spain Um, in the 8th century, in 711, right? He says that actually the idea of an Islamic invention was actually only emerged uh, a century and a half later and was really... Part of a kind of propaganda campaign um, by uh certain christian factions in, in a particular political moment but that actually is islam's entrance into spain was part of a much slower longer process involving trade exchange interaction right um that took place you know, slowly over many years and was not, was not based in an army coming across the, you know, coming across the straits in 711. But that that part of Iberia had gradually become connected to, you know, other parts of the Middle East um, through these processes of trade and exchange. Now that view radically upsets the sort of stability of categories, you know, Muslim, Jew, Christian, European, Middle Eastern particularly because he sees 8th century Iberia, you know, not as a space in which people holding, sh- you know, sharply defined, discrete religious identities encountered each other, but a space where some of those identities were just in flux and coming into being and where, um, he you understand that Islam was not sort of, you know, fully fleshed out in that moment for many people as a particular kind of identity but was part of a number of kind of monotheistic options that existed at the time that people gravitated to for various you know for various reasons um and that therefore was part of a kind of a world in flux let's say in the eighth and ninth century iberia in which these identities were in the process of crystallization, but had not arrived, let's say, fully formed. Well, that disturbs the entire sort of distinctions at the heart of Spanish nationalism, where, you know, you have a foreign other who arrives at a particular moment and is then eventually expelled again so that Spain can return to its true identity as a Christian nation. Um, So he, he sort of radically scrambles the... You know that history by um, pointing to a a much more um, a much more fluid moment in the development of, let's say, these kinds of religious and political identities. Uh,
1: The next chapter you spend a lot of time uh, talking about flamenco, and of course, one of the key themes of the book is. The significance of the sensoria of aesthetics, music, etc., in terms of this uh, uh, encounter with the past that you're trying to describe throughout the book. So, uh, could you speak a bit about? I guess I'll just ask a broad question why is flamenco so important to the Andalusista tradition? And uh, you call, you, 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 you mentioned in the chapter that it occupies what do you call it, transgressive historical space that again calls into question the stability. Of modern Spanish nationalism into question. Perhaps you could speak a bit about that, and and then finally, uh, I was wondering if you could explain a bit to our listeners the central category of this chapter, which is this idea of uh, a sonorous foundation. So what you what you mean by this a sonorous foundation, and how it connects to the argument of this chapter?
2: Yes, I, I was, I was. Uh you know, the, the the more I went forward with my study of Andalu, Andalusismo, I was struck by how much Andalusista literature, that how much flamenco was foregrounded in, in so much of the literature. Literature writings that seemed, you know, to be on all sorts of topics, let's say whether it was, you know, accounts of history or of architecture, flamenco would come in, you know, or even accounts of politics. Flamenco would nonetheless appear, um, you know, as if somehow that musical form was, an engagement with that musical form was necessary in, in order to understand or to sort of fully feel the intersection or this, this union of Al-Andalus with Andalusia today, that it's, it could only fully be encountered in some ways through music. And so no matter what the, what, what particular dimension of history was being explored, music allowed one to sort of grasp it or let's say feel it in ways that were useful to the historian's account as if flamenco provided let's say the most resonant example of this continuity of modern spain with its medieval past and of modern spain with the middle east right because a lot of a lot of those works were examining the connections of flamenco or its relations with music on, on the other side of the mediterranean um so in the, from the very beginning, and, and this goes back to, you know, the early, late 19th century writers, Andalusistas heard in flamenco this sort of vitality and spirit, right, of, 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 their, own, of their own heterogeneous past. It's also, a, you know, of Muslim Jewish, also of Ro- Roma peoples were also certainly a part of this. And, and a kind of repository of a, of a sensory memory of fragments of past experience that could be heard in that music. And, and Lorca, who is, I talk about in various places in the book, of course, was someone who explored in considerable depth that, you know, flamenco as a repository of these earlier earlier traditions from, from the other side of the Mediterranean. Um, and in that sense, the music, you know, the music as understood by Andalusistas kind of charted a territory that both embraced the South and... Uh, and you know all the way you know parts of north africa and the middle east and in some instances all the way to south asia um, but and also extended back to al-andalus that that uh, was seen as as kind of where the sort of foundations of this music lie lay so so in relation to spanish nationalism you know you asked about it the transgressive historical space um Flamenco occupies a, a particularly paradoxical place in relation to Spanish nationalism. Um, on one hand, it's, a, it's an you know it's an aesthetic tradition that's distinctly you know tied to Andalusian experience and therefore to forms of language and memory that encode that experience. I mean, the fact that it's uh, you know flamenco, classically was often sung in an Andalusian dialect and passed on as an oral tradition, right through. Within within the the region of Andalusia, Andalusista, and of Andalusia, um, and this in, in the view of the Andalusistas meant that flamenco could never be fully appropriated by Spanish nationalism, because it contained a, a sort of fundamental otherness that had to do with its its deep roots in this sort of multi-confessional medieval world, um, that that made it resistant, let's say, to assimilation into the 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 vision of a purified Spain that was promoted by, and in a particularly forceful way by national Catholicism under 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 Franco. So the paradox is, of course, that you know if we think about flamenco, flamenco in many ways stands for the music of Spain par excellence, right? Spain, right? If you think of a of a musical tradition. that uh you know flamenco is the first one that comes to mind so spain has this and this is this is not something just of of uh music we could also think you know what else stands stereotypically for spain you think of things like bullfighting well bullfighting is another practice that you know brought by really brought by arabs and arab culture and that and that is a practice taken up in Southern Spain, you know, during the, the period of, of Muslim rule. And yet, paradoxically, um, having this Middle Eastern origin and emerging in this context, this very heterogeneous religious context, it still comes to stand in ways, ultimately, for for something that's essentially Spanish. So, you know, it, it's, it points to a kind of complicated aspects of 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 Spanish identity and, and Spanish nationalism. But for, for Andalusistas, it points to the sort of flamenco would always remain unassimilable to, and always point to a heter and irreducible heterogeneity within sort of the Spanish nation. And it, and it, and it created, and it provided the sort of um, the sensory means and the emotional means through which to encounter, a history, a history that, in many ways, was had been rendered extremely difficult to, to access because of its erasure, of its historical erasure since, you know, since uh, since the Reconquista and an erasure that was pursued, you know, uh, quite severely by the Inquisition, by the Spanish Inquisition. So this term, sonorous foundation in Spanish, uh, fondo sonoro, that I use, is a term that I. You know, I first heard from a musician that I met and was used to dis- he was using it as a term to describe a kind of space of commonality where he is a flamenco musician, um, could encounter musicians from Morocco and trained in Moroccan uh, what's called tradition of Andalusi music in Morocco. and uh, Moroccan andalusi music has a has a direct link to medieval the medieval music of Al-Andalus and and so when when uh European or Spanish historians were interested in exploring their own musical traditions they were forced to go to Morocco to do so right because in Spain there no longer existed a continuous tradition of of Andalusi music but but there did in 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 Morocco even though it had had certainly evolved in ways it still remained in important ways connected to the earlier medieval tradition flamenco musicians on the other hand right flamenco on one hand is is different in all sorts of ways from from andalusian music from moroccan Andalusi music but when what this musician was the reason why he invoked this term sonorous foundation was to point to the way that with a kind of careful learning what could hear beneath both musics, a kind of common ground. And that common ground opened up possibilities of improvisation and, and encounter between them. And right, and he emphasized this sort of the way in which it created possibilities of improvisation. And, and indeed, there have been all sorts of collaborations bet- across the, between flamenco players and, and uh, musicians skilled in Andalusian music in the last few decades that, that we can see are instances of this improvisation. I found this term in, you know, useful to think with, not only in terms of music, but also in terms of history. And the reason why is that um, I also came to think of like Andalusismo as a tradition founded on, let's say, the articulation of just such a space of commonalities, those commonalities that bind Europe to the Middle East, and bind them both back to, let's say, medieval Iberia. It's a kind of common space that allows for the exploration of connections, connections that cannot otherwise be recognized within, let's say, the protocols of nationalist historiography, within the sort of norms of of political, cultural, religious life that, that govern the present. Um, and so Andalusismo, in, in some way, can be seen as a project to, to articulate that space of commonality, um, a space that is also you know enables a kind of improvisation, that is a certain sort of um, a kind of uh, exploration of connections, of overlaps, of resemblances, and it and attempts to sort of re-articulate them, pull them together, within um, the modern let's say, religious, political, aesthetic space. And that, that labor involves a kind of improvisation. And that, that takes us back to what I was talking about in terms of an, an ethics of disorientation. It involves finding oneself and, and learning, let's say, learning to move and think um, in a space that in some ways defies understanding through the terms that dominate our political, religious, and cultural life. Um, and in doing so, to create, you know, new possibilities in the present, and that's what I see as a as a kind of at the heart of the Andalusista tradition.
1: Now I want to turn uh, to the next chapter. Uh, actually, uh, before I uh, do that, I'll just get some quick pronunciation help from you, Charles, uh, this thinker you uh, talk about, um, G a n i v e t. How how you pronounce that name? Ganimet. I just want to make sure. Okay, great. On Ganimet and Lorca. Um, I was really struck by this category in this chapter, what you call, or perhaps you were quoting one of them, um, the terrible symmetry of uh, of modernity, or of modern nationalist historiography. And you show that in their work, there is a certain kind of an asymmetry at work. And you also show ways in which they, they activate the sensoria in their work in trying to retrieve a certain uh, past of Granada. This chapter is focused on Granada, of course. Uh, that is uninhibited by the alleged cleavage of 1492, the, the the kind of way in which oftentimes historiography is divided between the pre and the post 1492. Um, so, so I was just wondering if you could speak a bit about these two two figures. And I also noticed that you make this important distinction between a certain kind of a, a, a melancholy or a melancholic retrieval versus a nostalgic uh, engagement with the past. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I guess I'll just ask you a broad question about how does asymmetry and the sensoria uh, work in, in uh, the, the, the work of these two particular figures and uh, centered on the context mm-hmm. of Granada?
0: Sure.
2: Um, yeah, as, as, as you know from reading the book, Ganivet is a kind of father figure of Andalusismo, and he was, he was one of the leading Spanish intellectuals, um, part of what 's called the generation of ninety eight those those who were writing sort of in a during this a period of national crisis right when Spain was losing the last parts of its empire when it was confronting its um its entrenched weakness economically politically vis a vis the other other European states, so he was one contributor to a kind of national discussion um about. Spain, its identity, its crisis, its history. But what makes him unique is that he did so from a very particular location. He was born in Granada and he always wrote and, and, and sought sort of cultivating a writing that took Granada as the basis for his thought. Um, that is, that took the sort of lens provided by the city, a city with its, with its unique multi stranded history as the place from which to sort of confront the crisis of, of modern Spain and modernity more broadly, right? And he, this history, or this what he understood as a kind of, you know, the palimpsestic reality of the city, right, could only be encountered through a kind of sensory experience. It didn't lend itself to understanding through, let's say, a, a kind of rational analysis. But, you know, as with other people influenced by the Romantic tradition at the time, he understood that, that um, the senses were important, that a sensory emotional experience was an important conduit through which a deeper knowledge could be attained. And so much of his writings has to do with an exploration of the sensual contours of the city, contours that he very much understands as having been shaped and and as being still alive with uh, histories from the medieval period, for which Islam and Judaism were important, um, you know, and he felt that the, that past could only be could only be revivified or given life by its sort of sensory absorption, by its by one's sensory attunement to to its present. Now, when I put it in those terms, you know, you realize those are kind of cornerstone terms of Andalusismo. And his writings have have provided a kind of Ur text for that tradition. So, given that kind of romantic, you know, perspective, he was very critical of the sort of sanitized rationalism that he saw as characteristic of modernity. That he saw as undergirding the, the sort of processes of abstraction and generalization that were, in his view, destroying the city at times. And that he described through this, you know, in, in this term that I use of a terrible symmetry, right, which is a term by which he tried to grasp the the sort of destructive force of modernity on, on a traditional life that he greatly valued. Um, and so, you know, like, the, like Andalusistas who followed him, um, He found that Grenada's unique form of life was the result of this particular synthesis of diverse historical elements. What what I found particularly interesting, though, he did not he did not see that these elements had resulted in some harmonious fusion. Rather, the the kind of synthesis they produced, or the way in which they interacted and 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 transformed each other through that interaction. left a kind of irreducible heterogeneity, right? It's it's not that there was a, a sort of singular unified culture that was the product of this multi-stranded history. Um, that in some sense, we could say, you know, that Granada, as he understood it, was never quite identical with itself. It was always shaped by and inhabited by dimensions of, of history that... Um, could not be fused into a sort of singular whole. And so against this drive, and let's say the drive toward a purified national identity that he saw as part of sort of modern nationalism, you find in his work a kind of attention to the value of living with a complex and unsettling inheritance. Right, he, he's, His reactions to the sort of, you know, the, the, the presence of, of Islam in the, you know, in the shaping of, of Grenada. It's not just a sort of, it doesn't just lead, let's say, to a singular identity, but a way of living in the presence of difference that I found quite, quite original and interesting. And you find something similar in, in Lorca's writings and poetry as well, a kind of engagement with an irreducibly plural inheritance both of them understood their writings in some way and their thought they both described it in terms of their thought was an expression of the city not something that that they themselves invented and and you know lorca you know lorca in order to, you know who wrote extensively on granada and its traditions and its spirit and its music right understood that to that he had to leave europe in order to understand to understand the city that he was born into he had to study you know Persian and Arabic poetics in order to hear what you know the the spirit that arose from the streets that he inhabited and that it was only through those journeys outside of Europe and outside of Spain that he could grasp some dimensions of the landscape that made him who he was and it's an interesting and, and most of the Andalusistas are, are a key sort of a key aspect of sister life is a journey outside, and often a journey through the Middle East, and often involves learning aspects of Arabic or other Middle Eastern languages. Um, and one other key part of that landscape, as both Ganivet and Lorca understood it, was that it had been shaped by loss. It had been shaped by, right, the violent expulsion of peoples and their histories, and it had been shaped by the suffering. It, it was colored by... The suffering of those who had been expelled there, of the Muslims and Jews who had been forced out. And that throughout the text of Andalusismo, one finds this pervasive sense of loss and and of melancholy, therefore. Um, But, you know, when I say for for Lorca and Ganivet, this melancholy did not, you know, it engendered something than a kind of nostalgia for an idealized and irretrievable past. It wasn't about sort of recuperating some idealized past. It was rather that, you know, in keeping the, the past alive in the present, um, enabled one a unique perspective on, uh, a unique perspective on, you know, the traditions of Western identity then that were then dominant. A valuable perspective on problems of European modernity in Spain that, that one would not have in less one recognized and you know that that heterogeneous landscape marked by loss and marked by by suffering and lorca speaks about it quite directly you know that that his that his engagement with that experience of suffering attuned him to you know when he goes to new york it says it attuned him to the plight of you know of african americans and their suffering and tuned him to, um, therefore, you know, the politics of the dispossessed in ways that um, he wouldn't otherwise have been able to, to recognize. And so, on. Um, Very different than, let's say, a kind of nostalgic desire simply to recuperate some idealized past. And I think, you know, when you mention nostalgia, it's you know, nostalgia is often a term that's used to describe, let's say, Andalusismo. And I think it functions as a term of disqualification, right, in some ways, that it, it terms to mark a kind of relation to the past that's not quite authentic, or at least not, not quite grounded in actuality, and that represents a kind of, you know, an overabundance of sentiment and uh, a lack of sort of objective standards. And therefore even if we can appreciate a kind of nostalgic, you know, a, a nostalgic attitude for the past, it's still, um, we're so, still suspect on the kinds of claims that it authorizes. And it, it becomes more a kind of, we recognize it as a kind of, you know, a certain sort of romanticism that needs to be kept within bounds, but that should not be given too much space within our, political, social thought, and that's, that's, uh, you know, I think terms like nostalgia and terms like romanticism are deployed against romanticism precisely to, you know, to protect against it, to ensure that its claims not be given space, and I think that's, therefore, they have a kind of policing function within modern historical discourse. I think I've answered uh, did yeah, you yeah, another your question I didn't get to
1: uh, no no I'll I'll, I'll I'll move to the next question now and um, I actually want to ask you two questions as as a way to uh, sort of complete our uh, conversation in the book um, you know two of the things that the book really critiques quite uh, in very interesting ways of course one is this idea of a historicism this kind of uh, uh, understanding of historical representation that is very suspicious of sentiment and affect etc and we've talked about that uh, quite a bit in our conversation another critique that one sees perhaps implicitly and at times perhaps even explicitly is a certain kind of a subtle critique that you launch throughout the book but it especially comes in the introduction and then the conclusion is a critique of orientalism that you know one ought not to be dismissive of certain projects of remembering the past and 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 engaging with uh, you know uh, certain aspects of uh, of the past just because they might seem like romantic or they might seem to be uh, operating on a certain kind of an orientalist mode so that's my first question if you could speak a bit about that kind of a a subtle critique of orientalism that one sees that one cannot sort of package all of this kind of a remembrance of the past into some kind of an orientalist mode so that's that's one the other question i wanted to ask you was that um actually i wanted to ask you about the form of the book itself i mean one of the key arguments that that you make throughout the book is that the way i read it, it it's a book that is an invitation and an argument for Uh, again, imagining the past beyond historical representation and involving the senses and the sensoria through art, music, architecture. And you uh, say in the conclusion that what you're trying to do is reattune the senses uh, in a way uh, so that one can uh, really critique the ontology of Europe or the kind of exceptionalism of Europe by retrieving this ontology of uh, Andalusismo, if I may frame it that way. Uh, so I was wondering, you know, in terms of the writing of the book, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, it's an incredibly lyrical uh, book, and one, one clearly does see that. How did you think about this project of of communicating to the reader in this kind of a very affective uh, uh, manner, uh, engaging the sensory of the reader, so to say, in terms of capturing this ontology of, his, of this of this past, which has been uh, which has been sort of blanketed or or or, or sort of covered by uh, a certain kind of a european exceptionalism uh uh or, or a reading of um, uh, an ontology of europe that that covers and 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 uh, hides this this past how did you sort of go about that project in terms of the form of the writing in terms of how the write the form and the argument coalesce i guess is what i'm trying to try to get at um, if that makes any sense so yeah yes um
2: yes yeah, so one of the you know as 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 you picked up on certainly one of the Perspectives in the book is 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 the idea that there are other ways that we're attuned to the past than than that authorized by the discipline of history. Um, you know, I was just just uh, this week rereading um, Moses and Monotheism, Freud's classic text on uh, you know, it's an engagement with the sort of foundational account of Moses, right, in the biblical figure of Moses, and and Freud offers a kind of Conjectural history, right? In which Moses comes, right? It comes to be identified. He identifies Moses as an Egyptian, right? And says that Moses was actually an Egyptian and not a Jew. And and this is an account. And he and he he rewrites a kind of, or he writes a sort of what we could call a speculative history about um, reinsert, reinterpreting certain certain sort of features of the way in which. The historical figure of Moses, to the extent that Moses can be grasped as a historical figure, have been have been understood. Now, his account has long been—you know—historians have long criticized his account for what they see as kind of conjectural, conjectural claims. Um, it's kind of speculative history. But but you know, while Freud's account—and this is what was sort of striking me—it certainly relies on historical narrative. You can even say it relies in ways on what we might call like an adequation to facts. It's not that facts are irrelevant to it. But he doesn't call it a historical reading. He calls it a psychoanalytic one. And in doing this, I understand he's not saying it's therefore fictional. um, Nor is he saying that it's divorced from a commitment to understanding the past. But he's saying the past cannot quite be understood within the solely through the tools provided by history or by the, let's say the discipline of history and so what he calls a psychoanalytical reading is one that's right not a departure from reality and therefore and not a departure from our engagement with the past but but tries to gap gap capture gaps capture aspects of the past that are irretrievable let's say within the you know, the, the standpoint provided by, by historiography. And I thought that that sort of resonated in some ways with what I'm suggesting in this book, right? That, I mean, the discipline of history, it, it vouchsafes a particular relation to the past, right? One that, you know, is that accords with a certain kind of view of human life, uh, a view that emerged with the growth of modern states, modern nation states, um, You know, it's a view that, in the past, when properly understood, is something behind us, something that you know imposes no restrictions on our actions in the present that that leaves us free to construct the society as as we see fit, and this accords with a certain liberal view of of human autonomy and agency, and um, as well as you know the sort of Enlightenment critique of tradition and. It's a view that establishes a firm boundary, let's say, between the past and the present. And in doing so, liberates the present from what would be the kind of um, restrictions uh, from the past. But it in itself involves a particular kind of attunement to the past, right? I would call it an emotional stance. That emotional stance is often called dispassionate. But dispassion is also a passion. That is, it's a particular attunement of the senses, right? And it's and it's seen within that field as an epistemic necessity for arriving at an objective account but it's a it's both an attunement and a set of procedures that we can recognize as historically bound up with the emergence of a particular political form right and and we can chart its origins particularly let's say in 19th century europe and and it's in some ways it's inseparable from from commitments that emerge and that are tied to that political form, and so my claim is that you know the, that there are asked, that our lives may attune us to the past in ways that cannot be accommodated to the sort of protocols of that particular form of that particular history, um, and that that does not mean, however, that uh, that we are that we're you know engaging in a fall from truth into fiction. But that, um, and I'm, you know, I'm a little nervous with just saying that, you know, it sounds too banal to say there are different kinds of truths, but there is ways in which one, one wants to grasp that the past is not, the way that the past is integral to our lives is not exhaustively understood through one particular method, you know, through one particular approach. Um... Now, many, as I was just saying before, people who assign value to the distant past, like who, and particularly who feel like passionately attached to the distant past, are looked on with suspicion. And their accounts are glossed through such terms as nostalgia, romanticism, or the invention of tradition, which are all understood as sort of, you know, kinds of uh, accounts that serve ideological purposes, but are not, but are all... All kind of stray from from reality and from uh, from an objective account, and that's why you know in 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 my own book I sort of tread cautiously with these terms, terms that are that tend to disqualify perspectives on the past that, that don't accord with let's say the a modernist historical toolkit. Um, and so, like you know, the, the most common accusation against the Andalusistas are that they are romantics and that. You know, and that once that is recognized, well, now we know the kind of errors they've fallen into, right? And therefore, there's not a lot more to say it, and and we also know they're dangerous because um, we have the historical experience teaches us that romanticism can lead to the kind of the peril of fascism, and therefore, it's it's to be avoided. And my sense is that, th- that those kind of historical lessons close down um, important experiments in thought and life that that have something to teach us and that's uh and so that's you know one key a key part of the book is to open up a space to to sort of grasp those other kinds of histories and to challenge the idea that you know that history is simply can be grasped through a kind of representational practice and as i as as you noted i think that the the dispositions that orient us to the past are also shaped by things like art, music, architecture, that attune us to the way, to the past in ways, and that, that give it importance in our lives and that, that open up aspects of the past that we would not otherwise recognize the significance of. Not just as sort of neutral dimensions of some distant, uh, of some distant location but as things that strike us and that are therefore touch on our emotions for reasons that's important to understand and not just dismiss as oh we've fallen into emotionalism but to understand why that past resonates with us and that's that's one of the things I learned in part from Wittgenstein is that I talk about in the first chapter and your your question about the, the sort of form of the book and I you know you're absolutely right that I felt that this tradition, um, that in order to sort of to communicate it, I had to deploy some of its own resources. That is, some of its own passional resources, um, which at times, you know, produced, you know, entailed a kind of led to a kind of literary uh, quality to some of the writings. As I as I seek to sort of in describing. You know some of the views of the Andalusistas, and, and some of the some of what I came to understood through long conversations with people, and through getting to know uh, some of the some of the people involved in this movement. That um, that could not quite be translated into ideas, but that had to be communicated through um, through passion.al means and through seeking to sort of cultivate in the reader a sensitivity to the arguments being made. So there's both, there are arguments being made, but to bring the reader along also, I think necessitated, you know, working, working on the reader's own sort of perceptual toolkit, their own sort of, um, you know, emotional, affective dispositions. And, and so the, the, you know, the, I don't think it's, you know, if I, I mention in the epilogue to the book, you know, that for some readers that will, you know, the very failure of the book will have to do with it having strayed too far into a kind of romantic, fallen over the edge of a kind of romanticism itself. Um, but the book is an attempt, is is I, overall could be seen as an invitation to sort of rethink the, our, our sort of immediate um, assumption about what romanticism means and to say that the romantics were also attuned to something important that that one wants to hold on to. And that has to do with the, 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 the epistemic value of the emotions, and including in our relation to the past. And I think that's, you know, I've certainly learned a lot in, in sort of re-engaging uh, romanticism.
1: Uh, yeah. Before I ask my final question, just a quick um, clarification for the for the listeners who may not have seen the book yet. That when I said the implicit critique of Orientalism, uh, I didn't mean so much the phenomenon of Orientalism. Of course, I'm sure you're critical of that also, but a certain kind of a Saidian Orientalism that might be dismissive towards traditions like Andalus, et etc. That's what I meant. Um, yeah.
2: Let I I'll just let me just quickly say in that you're absolutely right. I'll be I'll be very quick. I promise. And that is, um, you know. It's, Said, you know, and very importantly and usefully, offers us a reading of the way in which, you know, Orientalism was connected to processes of power and tied, therefore, to um, to uh, processes by which European domination of the non-West was secured. And I think, you know, there are many insightful and very important lessons that, that, that book taught us. And indeed, you know, it's not that, it's not that Andalusismo is, 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 uh, that that's not an aspect of Andalusismo. As I mentioned, it, it did have linkages to the colonial project. And yet I found that a kind of reduction of it in, let's say, instrumental terms as simply a device of power as, as a, as a, a sort of device wielded by the Spanish state for its own colonial ambitions, did injustice to the sort of lived quality of this tradition, which really was not reducible to some kind of instrumental standpoint, but had to do with people struggling with a complex inheritance and and building a kind of perspective and a way of life that did justice to that inheritance now that may have been sort of instrumentalized by officials from the state indeed it was but that does not uh, do justice to the full the full kind of dimensions of of andalusismo which cannot be grasped in purely instrumental terms at all and I think you know that would be that's why the book is somewhat critical of a kind of reductive reading of orientalism I think that orientalist cannot just be seen as sort of Pawns of European power. I think there's a more complex history of Orientalism. It also has to do with the sort of a more more sort of um, complicated relations that people had with the with the material societies histories of the Middle East they were engaging. So the book's an invitation to sort of rethink some of that.
1: So as we're coming to the end of our time, Charles, uh, could you uh, perhaps briefly share with our listeners a bit what you're imagining as perhaps the next uh, project? I know you've just done with a really incredible book, so uh, uh, but in case you have some ideas about what might be the next uh, project you'll be doing. I,
2: I would love to do that, but but um, my predic- my own predicament is that I've been made chair of my department, which has so monopolized my time and thought that it has, it has uh, erased or uh, any kind of other other sort of thought that was once brewing, and uh, I did have some some uh, ideas developing, and they've been so so over you know powerfully um, erased by the demands of chairship that I can barely uh, I can barely remember them. So I'm once I become I do want I do have to say I'm I'm very interested in. In uh, returning to the Middle East and um, returning to sort of working in Arabic again, which I miss that most of, most of my work, not all of it, but most of my work was in Spanish and engaging aspects of of that history. And so I, I'm, I miss working in the Middle East. So my next project will certainly, certainly be there, but I am too uh, bound up right now with administrative issues to even be able to give you an adequate answer.
1: The Feeling of History, Islam, Romanticism, and Andalusia uh, by Professor Charles Hirschkin, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021. Well, thank you so much, Charles. It was such a pleasure to, to, to engage your book, wrestle with your book, and to then I'm sure our listeners also must have really appreciated your really erudite and uh, incredible commentary uh, on the book and all these answers that you've provided. I'm sure this will spark a lot of very interesting and important conversations in multiple uh, fields of knowledge. So thank you so much for your time and for coming on uh, the New Books Network.
2: The pleasure was mine, and I I really appreciated the question. So thank you.
1: So this was my conversation with Professor Charles Hirschkin about his Sure to become a classic book, The Feeling of History. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.